Hi, I'm Isra Kwonga. And I'm Ryan Hunt. And we co-host Stadio, a football podcast on the Ringer Podcast Network. If you like soccer or football, make sure you search for Stadio, a football podcast on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. It's Off the Pike, presented by FanDuel. The road to the NBA Finals starts now, and FanDuel is the best place to get in on the action. Right now, you can check out the new and improved Quick Bets, which are back and better than ever for the NBA playoffs on FanDuel. Find what you're looking for faster and easier with more props right at your fingertips. You can check out live bets like 3-Minute Markets and exclusive live bets like quarter player props, player assist combos, and more. So download the app today and bet with FanDuel, official partner of the NBA. The Ringer is committed to responsible gaming. Please visit rg-help.com to learn more about the resources and helplines available and listen to the end of this episode for additional details. Must be 21 plus, 18 plus in DC and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit rg-help.com. This episode is brought to you by cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. Welcome into Off the Pike. I'm Brian Barrett. We have a busy day in Boston as Patrice Bergeron announced that he's retiring. We also have Jalen Brown signing a massive contract for $304 million, the biggest in the history of the NBA. And joining us now to break that down is Chris Forsberg from NBC Sports Boston. Chris, how are you, man? I'm good. I'm good. Now we can get on with our summer, right? Like we all knew this was <laughs> going to happen. We were all just kind of waiting and wondering and uh, well, now it's here. And so uh, we can break it down and then I can start packing my suitcase. Yeah, that's that's nice. I thought it would come a little bit earlier than this, but here mm-hmm. we are. So it's five years, 304 million, as I said, which is at the time, this is now the richest deal in NBA history. Somebody's going to pass it in very short order. But nonetheless, Jalen ha- can have this on the resume. Richest guy in the history <laughs> of the NBA, at least for one contract. So there is a trade kicker, but there's no fifth year option. And we had gotten to the point where there was a chance, or I should say, we got to the point where I didn't think Jalen was going to take less no matter what, considering, you know, you had the Durant stuff in the past where he had been rumored to be in that deal. We had the whole situation with the three-way call with him and Jason Tatum and Brad Stevens. So you knew that Jalen was going to, and he deserved it. He was all NBA to sign the Supermax contract. But I do think when you look at the back and forth here, I think the Celtics... This works out pretty well for them in terms of the fifth year option, but also on Jalen's side, at least he has the trade kicker and I'm sure he wanted something in the contract. And I'm sure that's why he was fighting for the fifth year option, not just to get to free agency again, but just the fact that there had been trade rumors in the past. But I think, especially from a Celtics perspective, not getting that fifth year option on there, I think that's huge for them just because, and look, the goal is that Jalen is here long term <laughs> and he's happy here long term. But we have seen so many times in the NBA, guys are asking for trades sooner rather than later. And having another year on that contract just helps the Celtics from a leverage perspective if that would happen down the road. Yeah. And from my perspective, it's always like if the Celtics were going to go to 35%, then I think they wanted something in return. Right. And it's so rare to see guys kind of give up that that player option at this point. But especially with the new CBA and kind of trying to plot long term financials. I think it was important that the Celtics had that security and, and, you know, like, I don't know if Jason Tatum will be as kind when they get to the bargaining table next summer. <laughs> and I'm, I'm, I, su- I suspect he will get 
a fifth year player option, but for Jalen, he sacrificed a lot on his rookie scale extension just to, to, to be back in Boston and had to hit some pretty, what felt like lofty incentives to uh, really get that to the, to the value that it's gotten to. So um, yeah, I think each side got a little bit of, of what they wanted. Now the trade quick, the trade kicker is weird, right? Like you can't earn more than 35% of the cap in any year if I'm reading the CBA, right? And so it doesn't really matter what the percentage is because even if it's 10% instead of 15%, like the, the cap's going to grow at maybe 10% per year and Jalen uh, raises are going to be at 8%. So it's really only like in my mind, and again, maybe some smarter CBA person will swoop in here and tell me differently, but there's only like 2% or four, like by the end of his contract, I think he's at 31 point something percent of the cap. So you're only kind of haggling over 4%. And, you know, it matters because you, you, you it does add money if he is moved and it's going to at least take the sting out of having to move on. It also makes the team think twice and it makes kind of making a deal a little bit more complicated. So it just gives the player a little bit more security, but I don't think it's going to hinder the Celtics, if they do ultimately have to move off this contract long-term, I just think it, it just adds a layer of, of protection for Jalen, who, if you weren't going to get the fifth-year player option, at least you got this. Yeah, and I think they probably just wanted, from Jalen's side of things, they probably just wanted something in the contract. Mm-hmm. And I think that's probably why it took a while, because he was probably steadfast on getting that fifth-year option until the point where it's like, okay, we keep going back and forth on this thing. For the Celtics, we're not budging. We will give you the trade kicker, but we're also giving you $304 million. So, you're not getting the fifth year option. And I agree with you. Tatum will get it because they already set a precedent with Tatum, right? Tatum got the yeah. option in the last contract. So I, I would assume that he gets this one as well. And to your point about the CBA, I think there's been, and I really think maybe as recently as the Bradley Beal deal, where a guy that had a trade kicker didn't mm-hmm. actually get the trade kicker because of the finances of the team he was going to. So this may not even be like an important part of the contract, just Jalen getting some kind of security. I'm sure he likes it from that perspective, but- I do also think, Chris, that Jalen making the All-NBA team, it did really take a lot of drama out of this because mm-hmm. if you just think about it, there would have been no reason for him to extend this offseason because even if he went to free agency, he was going to be getting more money. So then they could have been in a situation, the Celtics, with, as I mentioned before, the Kevin Durant rumor and all that, <laughs> where you're saying to yourself, well, okay, we're just going to free agency. Yes, we're going to have the fifth year, but... There was a world where coming into this upcoming season where Jalen doesn't make all NBA, right? Because you get these guys coming back. Zion's coming back from injury. We'll see what happens with Kawhi Leonard coming back. Paul George, if he plays more games, Kevin Durant didn't play in a lot of games last year, so he didn't make it. So there's a chance he doesn't get it. And then those four years, rather than take the fifth year, it may look more appealing. So the Celtics could have found themselves in a position this offseason where are we thinking about potential Jalen trades. I'm sure they didn't want to do that, but if they didn't feel like, hey, he's going to commit to us long-term after next season, that may have happened. So Jalen making this all-NBA team, and I know it's a lot of money, $304 million, but it almost really, to me, it feels like a blessing in disguise that he made it because it did make, and I know I'm saying it made the negotiating process easier. It took a while to get to this point, but it did make (laughs) it a lot easier than it could have been. Yeah, all I think about is how many damn articles I would have had to write next year about like, what is Jalen Brown's future? And like all the trade rumors would have been out <laughs> yeah. there and I was dreading it. And like, I don't have a vote in all NBA, uh, thankfully, cause I probably would have been jaded to vote for Jalen just so I didn't have to deal with the drama next year. And, and, and like, look, he deserved it this year. And certainly the qualifications he, 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 he deserved to be on there. Uh, but yeah, just like you said, if there's one thing Brad Stevens has loved in his brief tenure as Celtics president of basketball operations, it's security. 
And I think that's my biggest takeaway coming out of this. Like one, you're, you're celebrating, okay, here's a homegrown player who just signed the biggest contract in NBA history. And you can quibble about, you know, whether he deserves it or not. As you said, Jason Tatum's going to come in next year and he's going to have the new yeah. highest contract in NBA history. <laughs> so it's a fleeting thing, but you get to celebrate a player that when he got taken number three and it wasn't his own fault, it was just like fans wanted uh, maybe a more known commodity. They wanted that Jimmy Butler or whatever was out there. And so they booed the pick and Jalen has sort of always had to kind of fight and scrap a little bit. So you get a chance to celebrate him. He's out of the trade rumors for at least a year. And depending on when he actually puts pen to paper, you know, it's one year from the date he signed. So maybe even he gets a little reprieve at the start of July next year, even though you could negotiate a trade and just wait to trigger it until August. So it's really not uh, a big thing after one year, but there's security next year. Porzingis is in the house and signed for two more years. Jason Tatum knows like, it doesn't matter if he makes all NBA, he's getting that super max next summer. Jalen's all locked up. Rob's long-term like, for me, it comes down to Brad has tried so hard to get everyone just singularly focused on the season at hand. And there really isn't a situation where it gets messy, except maybe the coach, you know, like we're all going to have Joe under the microscope. But otherwise, I feel like everything is lined up for this team to put all their focus. And like we're coming off a season where the focus was never, you know, really there because of the email situation. And then Joe and then I just like throughout the years, it was some sort of distraction. So I wonder if that security and again, without the all, as you put it, like without that all NBA, that wouldn't have been there. So Celtics really found a, a fortuitous situation by by getting this out of the way now. And I, I, I one thing I will say about it, I know everyone has sticker shock when these things come out. I remember when the Celtics signed Avery Bradley, one of my first years covering this team, and people were like, four years, $32 million. Are you kidding me? <laughs> we're paying Avery Bradley eight million. And by the end of it, it was like, is this a minimum contract? Because especially where the league is going, especially with the new TV money coming in. And I know there's going to be limits on what the cap can jump, but it, this deal by the end of it, I promise you, if you bookmark this in 2029 and come back to it, you'll be like, oh, 60, 69 million, as much as it was crazy then, isn't crazy in 2029, July of 2029, whatever it is. So I do think with well, a sticker shock will wear off eventually, especially once you start seeing players signing for 75, $80 million in the coming summers. Yeah, and it seems like with all the TV money coming in, it's going to make more sense if you just look at it back. Like, we look back to the contracts. I remember when Steph Curry, he was dealing with all these mm -hmm. ankle injuries early in his career. He signed for, like, four for 48. It was the same deal as Ty Lawson. And that, that's People how lost they got, their minds. Yeah, but that's how they got all these deals done, right? Like, that's the reason they could get Kevin Durant, because they had the salary cap space. And you had that weird year where the players didn't want to smooth the cap over. So what the players, what the players Association actually did was help the Warriors create this dynasty and all these like you, we, we had some ridiculous contracts that year. Like remember Evan Turner, Evan Turner got yeah. a huge contract, I believe from Portland, Timothy Mozgov, guys along those lines. But it's a great point on Jalen too. And just the stability of the team, because that was another uneasy part of it. You mentioned Ime, but the Jalen situation was uneasy. And I think at least now for the time being, he's going to feel secure here because they just locked him up to this contract. So I did want to get to Jalen in terms of so obviously making the all-star team, making all NBA, had a tremendous season, right? And I mean, some of the numbers are ridiculous. On long mid-rangers, 14 feet to the three-point line via cleaning the glass, 83rd percentile, 47.2%. Finishing at the rim was really good, 70.9%. That was in the 82nd percentile. Fast break points, 4.7. Third behind LeBron, Giannis, and Desmond Bain. 12.5 points in the paint. That was 13th. 
So, elite two-point jump shooter, elite finisher at the rim, elite transition player. But Brian, it, but Brian, Twitter tells me he had eight turnovers in game seven, so he's not worth $304 <laughs> million. Uh, that was something. I will say that, Chris. That I was, mean, it, was, it, was, it certainly was, and, I'm, yeah. I, and certainly you, but here's the, the counter-argument to me has always been, we didn't sit there and probably fully appreciate how good he was in the 22 finals. You know, he was the right. best player on the court for the Celtics, maybe outside of Rob when he was healthy. And like, it just, to me, it was, we, 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 it's easy to get caught up in the moment. And I am as much as anybody, a prisoner of the moment and getting caught up in that. I think if you look at Jalen's body of work, the progress that he's made and just like what you have to pay for a, a, an all NBA player in, in the league, like you just can't get caught up on the numbers. What was their alternative? Right. You know, just let him get the free agency, like try to find a trade. You know, even when we were talking about the Damian Lillard situation, I like, I just don't want to go back to 30 something year old small guards. It's we've been there. We've done that. And it, it hasn't worked. And so for me, if you can lock up a 26 year old wing who maybe still hasn't reached his, his full potential, who is definitely aware of everyone complaining about his ball handling and like what he needs to do to get better. And there were instances last year that I thought it did get better. I thought coming in like maybe early in the season when it's easier to put a priority on those things, when you can work with Tony Dobbins and get in the, the lab and do those dribbling drills. And, 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 and it certainly tightened up. It's gotta be better on the biggest stage. And I, I, I totally understand that, but if we're quibbling over like a player's struggles to go, go left at times, like, I mean, the, the rest of the body is, is is pretty good about what he's doing out there. And and like, I don't hear a lot of people complaining about the mid range. I don't hear a lot of people complaining about finishing at the rim. Right. Uh, he's not a perfect player, but I'm not sure there's any out there. Right. Like, I mean, short of 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 I mean, every every player has their their flaws. Like Embiid is great. Hasn't gotten over the hump. Luke is still trying to figure it like every superstar still has something about their game that isn't perfect. And so. Uh, yeah, I get it. Like Jalen's got a ways to go before he's in that conversation for a top 15, you know, maybe he's knocking on that door and, you know, I, I, we can get into the rankings and all that, but, uh, it's hard to find top 25 players. And when you do, and you can have the ability to lock them up, you got to do it. And again, I'm not telling you it's going to work out perfectly that this is the, uh, that this is going to be the marriage till 2029. I don't know. They're giving themselves some security now with Porzingis. I just wonder if, you know, what people think the alternative should have been. And if you think it's Lillard, like we can sit here and yell about it. I just don't think that's that. If you're worried about paying Jalen all this money, that wasn't the path to me. Yeah, well, and the other component to that is with Jalen, the contract is not going to be bad going forward, right? Because we see some of these Supermax contracts and they, like the Russell Westbrooks, the John Walls, mm -hmm. they get really bad, right? But the thing with Jalen is you're signing him through his prime year. So there's still going to be value on this. And I've made this point before. I actually think despite the bad year for Carl Anthony Towns and like his value has never mm. been lower in terms of how people perceive him as an NBA player. I still think they'd get something for that contract because oh, sure. of the fact that like, how about the New York Knicks? If the Knicks said, hey, we need a big man that can shoot. If Now, I'm sure they're holding out for the other big man that plays for the <laughs> Philadelphia 76ers, right? But I mean, if they can't get him, they may come back to the table on a guy like Carl Anthony Towns. And Jalen plays a more important position at the wing that eventually if... And like I said, we want this all to work out, but there's still going to be value on the contract mm -hmm. as well. But just getting back to Jalen. So the two-point shooting is really good. The three-point shooting, 33.5% last year. That was 130th of 149 qualifiers. Yet he took 7.3 per game, which was 22nd. And out of the players that took at least seven a game, the only guys that were worse were our old friend Terry Rozier, and mm -hmm. who we know likes to get him up, and, oh, Kyle, yeah. Kuz and Kyle Kuzma. Okay, so... 
And I know the Celtics, right? They were second in the league behind Dallas in terms of their frequency of shots that came from three-point territory. But one of the things I look at, I gave you all these numbers in terms of the two-point shooting, the finishing, mm-hmm. the fast break points, the points in the paint, where I think that Jalen could actually afford to be a lot less three-point reliant. Like, I look at guys like Durant. Well, maybe you could argue Durant should take more threes because his percent's so high. But he's at 5.1. He's never been over 7. Kawhi's at 4.8. He's never been north of 7. And I feel like the Celtics team, especially adding a guy like Porzingis that can stretch mm-hmm. the floor from the 5 position, we know Al's going to take a lot of threes. And Derek White's three-point shooting was greatly improved. We know Hauser's going to get, you would think, more minutes with some of the guys going out, especially a guy like Grant Williams, where I think this team has enough three-point shooting where I wonder, is it in their ethos, right, as a coaching staff, (laughs) Joe Mazzulla, et cetera, to say, hey, Jalen, like, I know we wouldn't tell anybody else this, but do you want to cut back on the threes? Because Mm. I feel like, Chris, he's too good of a player when he gets inside the lane to be taking north of seven per game. Do you think this is something that, will or should change or do you think this is just what they're going to do going forward with Jalen? So I I will be interested if, as you said, with the personnel that they have, there's some other options that you would probably prefer to be high volume with the three point shot. And and part of what I've kind of told myself to get myself over the emotional loss of smart is that picture every shot that Marcus took now is going to Porzingis and the seven foot three with his, with his ability to be super consistent back there. It's super intriguing. Uh, I do think like if, and and because I, I people think I come down hard on Joe and, and he was thrown into a, a tough situation. I do hope with the benefit of a year, with the benefit of a, a of, of a, a beefed up staff, a more experienced staff now, that there is some thought to okay, if offense is going to be the focus of this team, and as much as he loves the three point shots and the totals and all that, can there be more diversified ways that this team attacks? And like, how does that trickle down to? How does every player? best accentuate that. And maybe that is like Jalen. Okay. Like you, you we it, rare that we would say a player should shoot more from the mid range, but given your success in that spot, how do we find you more shots there? How do we, you know, if we, even if he's starting you on the ball, is it a high pick and roll with Kristaps Porzingis and Porzingis is popping and you're attacking and like, you're just picking the best of the two shots there. And so I do think there should be a focus on that. Uh, I do think They've sort of given them the okay to fire away there. And if both him and Tatum can get that number back up a little bit, you know, it's intriguing to think about how dangerous this team would be. And I think you can make the case if Tatum shoots anywhere near 38% or, you know, if if he ever gets up to 40%, he's going to be in the league MVP conversation even more than he is now. And so I want that to be part of what they attack. But yeah, I, I, I think we all know Jalen's best attribute, at least to me, is, you know, being able to attack the basket, attack in the mid range, and you need to find ways to do that. And maybe that's just, again, maybe that all falls back on ball handling. You got to be confident that he can attack without turning the ball over. But yeah, I I think in general, I would like to see the Celtics take a more balanced approach to their, to their offensive output. And no matter how much, you know, you're concerned about winning the three point battle and having six more attempts per game and whatever Joe wants to fall back on, I do think there's a there should be a priority on that this offseason. Well, and to your point on Joe, I think, too, like this staff makes a lot more sense around him now for a multitude of reasons. So first of all, like these guys were working for Ime, and then all of a sudden Joe is in the second row and he's promoted to be the head coach. And I give the coaching staff a lot of credit for working with Mm -hmm. Joe, but that's just an odd position to be in, right? Now I'm the boss of these guys where I was considered lower on the food chain than they were the season prior. Now, I do think that Joe was a little too rigid in terms of his offensive philosophy, if you will. That's why I did like the idea 
of bringing in Porzingis, even though you lose depth with Marcus Smart and with Grant Williams losing, basically, if you look at I know they added other guys like the O'Shea Brissett, mm-hmm. et cetera, but you're losing two guys for one guy. The thing I like about Porzingis is, to your point, you can kind of diversify your portfolio in terms of what you do offensively, because I think there has to be at least some level of frustration with the Celtics where now last year they had some issues defensively in the playoffs, but we've seen at times they make these runs. And then mm-hmm. the reason they went seven games with the Bucks had nothing to do with their defense. I mean, the Bucks offensive numbers were putrid, right? It was their offense got stuck in the mud. Same thing can be said about Golden State, where they just became a little bit too predictable. And now having a guy in Porzingis, and I know in the past, his post-up numbers have not been great. This past season, he was one of the best post players in the NBA. So when your offense does get stuck in the mud, get stuck in the rut, having that ability to throw it into the post to a guy like Porzingis can certainly help. And then to your point about Joe, if he doesn't change and this team doesn't look like if there's issues with the team or something along those lines, the reality is, and like I say with Jalen, obviously they want Joe to work out. Brad Mm -hmm. really likes Joe. He wants Joe to be the long-term coach of the Celtics, but there's now guys that could take over. Like Sam Cassell has been up for head coaching jobs. Charles Lee was just a finalist for like three head coaching jobs. So I think the good thing about this offseason is Joe has guys around him that have a ton of experience in the NBA. They can certainly help him out and that he's obviously on board with those guys coming in because it's now his team. They're coming in knowing they're coaching under him. But also, worse comes to worse, you do (laughs) kind of have a way that you could escape this thing with two guys that clearly at some point are going to be head coaches in the league. Yeah. And, and what I like is, and maybe it's just, and look, we never know for sure who's what the directive came from, but the way it's been phrased from both Joe and from the coaches coming in is that this was Joe's decision that he felt he needed more talent. And that's the way it has to be, right? Like, you know, yeah. you can't, it's, he just got shoehorned into a staff that was like, like you said, was probably looking at him like, Hey, this isn't our guy. This isn't why we came here. And as much as it's like, you're focused on your job. It's only human nature to to be. I don't. And I don't even say resentful was the word because none of those guys ever struck me as like not doing their job because it wasn't Ime in that seat. But just like you said, it was a weird dynamic. And I always kept wondering, like, who is Joe's guy that he could lean on? Even when Brad was here and going through it his first year, and they put Ron Adams next to him to give him that veteran guide at first. But he had Micah Shrewsbury, who you know Ben Butler with him and had gone off on his own and 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 still that was like the one guy he could sort of lean into and, and say like, you know, in a situation which could probably be brutally honest. I'm not sure Joe had that. And maybe Joe still doesn't have that, but at least he has two guys now that I think whose opinions are going to carry some weight and who probably aren't going to be afraid to tell him. And again, I don't want that to sound like I'm saying that Ben Sullivan and, and those guys were afraid because I think Damon Sotomayor, chief among them, were willing to, to, to speak up and came from a player's perspective, but certainly losing Damon midstream didn't help. And I just think it was just a complicated dynamic. And I do wonder if that above everything, like we know how supremely talented this team is. And I think that Porzingis raises the ceiling overall of what they can be. There's certainly question marks. How do they sort of tap into the defensive ID that they had before, especially losing Marcus and Grant. But I am a little bit more bullish that with a full off season, with the coaching staff they've got now, that there's some real chance to eliminate a, a little bit of the wrinkles that were there last year. And I'm just eager to see how it how it plays itself out. Now, if they come out and shoot 63s a night and I'm just like, OK, well, this is just Missoula ball. <laughs> like maybe that's the way it goes. But uh, I do hope there's like especially with with Cassell coming from Philadelphia. All right. It's it's a luxury to have a big man that you can just kind of throw it into. And Celtics really haven't had a guy who can like Porzingis now as his game evolves, be able to just 
do some post-ups? Can Tatum post up more when it's such a strength of his game and, and, yeah. and he doesn't tap into it enough? So I, I do hope there's just diversify that portfolio. You can still make three your, your, your bread and butter, but you can, there's other ways to score out there. Yeah, I'm totally with you. That's a great point. I didn't even think about that with Cassell, the fact that he was just with Joel Embiid, a guy they obviously played through a lot, and I'm sure he can bring stuff over from what they did in Philly, getting Porzingis some easy opportunities as well. And just to your human nature point, I think about it too, like, okay, Ime almost got the Nets job, right? And if you're an assistant coach, as I said, I wouldn't blame them at all for thinking about this Is hey, am I eventually going to be mm-hmm. coaching for the Nets? And then in the postseason... You have the Houston Rockets hiring Ime. This is in the middle of the Celtics making a postseason run. So if you're on that coaching staff, obviously you're trying to do everything you can to help the Celtics right now, but it's got to be in the back of your mind. (laughs) And I'm sure you're getting contacted, right, about, hey, am I going to Houston? And as we saw, guys went to Houston with Ime. All right, so I want to get to this because you talked to Aaron Miller, who has been working with Rob Williams. So I don't want to step on your quote here. But can you explain why Jason Tatum is mad at Robert Williams? <laughs> so, and this is something I think Jason said last year too. Like it wasn't a, it wasn't anything groundbreaking, but uh, there are times when we know how, especially when we watch him every night, how unselfish Rob is. I always call it hot potato, right? He gets the ball and he's just so eager to get rid of it that sometimes it causes some of his more hilarious turnovers. I think he's one point last year, I think he smashed Jason in the face with the ball, just trying to like push it up the court. So their whole thing has been, if, if everybody, especially late in games, is going to be keying on Jason and Jalen and now presumably Porzingis, the other two guys on the court got to be a little bit more willing to take those shots and instances. I mean, there are, it, it, there are times that Rob didn't go full Ben Simmons, but he would have a dunk and would just like drop it off because what Rob does, Rob doesn't care about scoring. He doesn't care about stats. He just wants to win and thinks that's the right play. I think they just want him to more often start looking for his own offense. And, you know, there have been times, I think, because which preseason it was, maybe two years ago now, uh, before he got the really got the started dealing with the injuries. Uh, he took a couple, he just came out in the first preseason game, took like three or four mid-range jumpers. And I remember we're all like, whoa, you know, and, and we all <laughs> thought he went rogue. But I do think in, in general, they want him to start diversifying that every big that has ever come to Boston has eventually spread to the three-point line. I mean, when Aaron Baines got here, hadn't really shot a three in his career. And the next thing you know, it's like his, it's his bread and butter. So I think we all understand at some point, Rob's going to gravitate out there. Now there's a balance. Like if the dude can jump to 12 feet, like you don't want him playing 25 feet from the basket, but um, you know, at least being a threat in that instance. And so I think what Aaron tried to stress is that he's uh, like, just trying to diversify. It goes back to what we're saying about the offense as a whole. Like everybody's got to be able to do various things and play to their strengths. And how can Rob do that? And so if Rob can pull up a, like two to three feet closer to uh, away from more away from the basket on a short roll and, 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 and beat a team with a floater, or if he can just knock down a 10 footer more consistently, like it just puts a lot more stress on the defense. And I'll be eager to see just how much that plays itself out again, Rob long-term it, the dunks are fun, but can he do that at 35? And that's a long ways away. But my, my whole thing is like, just start to figure out how and he's skilled enough and the shot looks good enough that uh, there's more that they can tap into. And uh, with the first healthy offseason, you know, I thought this way about Derek White last year where Derek, you know, comes here and gets thrown into the fryer and it, it you know, he just never got a chance to get comfortable flying home in the middle of the, the Miami series to, for the birth of his child. I really thought he could thrive this past season 
once he got settled and, and that bore itself out. Now, I didn't think he would be as good as he was, but certainly like he went up two levels compared to, to what I thought he could do. I wonder if there's the same sort of leap that could happen if Rob stays healthy. And so the priority has been on, on health and the priority has been on diversifying him as a player. And uh, I don't think anyone has to worry about him launching threes quite yet, but uh, you know, maybe <laughs> at least he'll feel a little bit more confident if that, uh, if that situation arises. Well, it's a great point on the health thing, because really, if you think about it, he really hasn't had a chance to develop in the offseason. And that's where all these players across the league add certain things, right? I mean, Jason Tatum last year worked on finishing stronger and foul drawing, right? And we saw this year that it certainly had an effect when he got onto the court. Rob hasn't had those opportunities because of all the injuries. I mean, I looked at it. The most mid-rangers he's ever taken in a season was 63. 63 wow. is the most mid-rangers. So he hasn't even had that opportunity. By the way, that year, he was 35 of 63. So 55.5%. Really low volume, but let's see if he digs into that a little bit more. Even if he can just, and I talked about this the other day on my pod, is that little push shot that so many big men have. Yes. If he can have that, like if he's in the dunker spot or if he's rolling to the basket, if the passing lanes are cut off. So I think there's there's hope for Rob. I'm optimistic. Now, the three-point, as you mentioned, I'm not optimistic that he's ever going <laughs> to shoot threes, but being knocked down a mid-ranger, it's obviously beneficial to this team. Well, I, I do. Th- I do think just to sum up that that little that little part of the of the pod uh, that if he develops that mid range game, he could be the next Kevin Garnett. Whoa. <laughs> okay. <laughs> now we're really talking. I mean, I, I don't want to exaggerate. I don't want to put too much pressure on Rob. But no, I like. I mean, no, let's just about, compare him to one of the greatest big men of all time. Then. <laughs> I, I guess that's my dream for Rob. Is like as much as and you're probably well aware. Like I'm a nerd for Rob, and I think yeah. just you could tell from the very beginning when everyone was focusing on the off the court stuff that the skill and just his demeanor is awesome. Like he just, all he really wants to do is win and then disappear and not be seen and doesn't care about any of that stuff. I think someone pointed out on uh it might've been Reddit or something like that, but they said uh, one of his workout pictures, he's wearing the same in one $9 Walmart shorts that you can find like, at, 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 like he's not getting official gear or whatever. So uh, Rob just wants to play basketball and win. And uh, the defensive stuff is, is all there. And we all know that, but if, man, if he could, just get a little bit more uh, on the offensive side. If he starts knocking down mid-range, like he's just, the the contract is already criminally low. And uh, I do think the impact, at least over contract value, would be wild. Yeah, I just want to see the health, right? And it's not his mm-hmm. fault. It's just he hasn't been able to stay healthy. And maybe if he continues with this situation where he has all this time in the offseason to work out maybe we'll see it maybe we'll see a healthy rob williams and see what he really can be in say like a seven game sample size if you will because we know the impact metrics are always through the roof with rob i mean go back to the finals he was like fourth and plus minus (laughs) his team lost in six games right i mean ridiculous what he was able to do in that series all right so we now have some reporting that the Celtics aren't looking to move malcolm brogdon anymore i mean we'll see about that but are we sure about that so i'm not I, I I think that they were obviously willing to move him for the right player in the Porzingis deal. And I don't doubt that, you know, his, his value is weird right now, right? Like he's sixth man of the year, but clearly hindered through the playoffs. There's, you know, they, the Brad told me right after the season that four to eight weeks of recovery, but you know, they were also exploring sur- surgery of uh, it was the other reporting at the, at the time of the, of the postseason. So you just don't know what you're going to get right now. And I thought it was going to be ambitious to think he'd shoot 43, 42%, whatever it was beyond the three point arc again, that he'd be as healthy as he was last year. So in the contract, like more than anything, like in a vacuum, you want Malcolm Brogdon on this team. But when you start looking at the long-term financials, even into next year, when Jalen's supermax kicks in, having his $22.6 million, $22.5 million on the books 
is just not tenable. And so I do think they have to be alert to it. And maybe that just means he has to be healthy at the start of the year and remind everybody what his value is. And maybe you cross that bridge of the trade deadline. I suspect that there's not a lot of deals out there that get full value for him. And so the better play is to sort of remind him that he is wanted here and that he can be an impactful player. I do hope in the way that we talk about everyone sort of adding a little something, you know, Malcolm was a little bit of a score first guy last year and he needs to, if he's going to run that second unit, uh, maybe get, get, get a little bit more of the facilitating back that he's done in the past. And so uh, I just think they're trying to, I think they're hopeful that they can make things right and understand that, hey, yeah, they might have traded him in the right situation, but didn't go through and and that he still has value here uh, and hope that if he's healthy, he can be as impactful as he was last season. Well, I'm glad you said that about the score first stuff, because it did appear at times he had blinders on, was not really willing to pass. And so let's go with the hypothetical he's on the team to start the season, which I think at this point is the most likely scenario. And I'm with you, like eventually it feels like you're going to have to move on from him, but If you look at him last year, right, you had, when he was on the court, your assists per 100 possessions were 24.6, which would have ranked around 18th. With him off the court, that was at 28.3, which would have ranked third in the NBA. So the ball, to your point, doesn't move when he's on the court. The ISO numbers for him, pretty good, 62nd percentile. He was third in points off drives on the team behind Jalen and Tatum. And by a wide margin, he was at 5.9, White was at 3.6. So it's a big drop off there. He also, as you mentioned, shot the three well, 44.4%, which was fourth. So he does a lot of things well for a bench guy. But in terms of the playmaking duties, to your point, he doesn't really do a lot of that. And you lose Marcus Smart, of course, in the trade to bring in Porzingis. And I just look at it, Chris. I don't know if he's capable of doing that, like being a playmaking guy. Like, I almost think the role that he had last year was perfect for him, right? Where it's like, hey, play 26 minutes a game. We know that you're a guy that has dealt with a ton of injuries throughout your career, so we want to keep the minutes low and sort of just worry about the scoring. So I almost feel like the playmaking is going to go more on, obviously, Derek White is going to be your starting point guard, but more of it, even more than last year, is going to be on Tatum, even though he ran a lot of the offense. But then I feel like Pritchard is sort of under the radar here in terms of they're going to be expecting like a lot of minutes from Pritchard and we'll see if he's capable of running that second unit. But I don't really want Brogdon to be the guy that is now thinking, oh, am I the point guard again? Like, I just don't think that's the best role for Brogdon. I just I don't think he's ever really shown that in his career. I'd rather him be a score first guy off the ball. I know that sounds like selfish, but that's what he's best at. Yeah. And and I can't argue that. I I just think so. the way I always look at it is if, if both those trades had gone through, let's say that they moved Brogdon for Przingis and then they still did the smart trade, they would have got back Tyus Jones from Memphis, right? And Tyus Jones is one of the highest assist to turnover ratio guys in the league. And I think that is your ideal for this second unit, where if you are going to have Hauser out there and you know whatever the big situation is, like you're probably going to be looking for a guy who can create off the dribble for others and spray it out and let them knock down shots. And that's certainly... Malcolm's blind spot last year. Like there were multiple instances where I'm screaming at him at, at, at the TV or at the game or whatever. Rob is right there for a lob and Malcolm just sort of wouldn't find him. And and at, some of that might just be not a lot of time together or whatever. And he but, smokes layups. Like his rim finish uh, really is, is crazy, horrible. right? For someone who gets by the first line of defense so easily, it was baffling that he was as, uh, as poor of a finisher as he is overall. So I'm with you. If like, if his role is just, hey, if he comes back in there and they go, you know what? Just do what you did last year. But now you got to play a second guard with him probably, right? Or either Tatum's going to run 
a lot of minutes with that unit and be the be the point guard or, or you know however it's got to be. Um, you know they got to figure that out. I do agree. And the, the only other concern is obviously Malcolm got a little bit exposed defensively in the postseason. And so okay, let's say you feel like you got to have some Pritchard minutes out there with the two of them to let Pritchard try to run the offense or whatever. You know now you're compromising yourself defensively, and maybe that doesn't matter with second unit minutes, but it's all part of the puzzle. So little things like that are what they got to figure out. And what's the best groupings for that second unit? And how do you maximize the the guys that are out there? Uh, but I'm with you. I think I think it, it's it, it, the the wild card in all this is Pritchard, right? Like, and he just made the select team, and that's not a huge deal. It's four days. You get to go out and work out with everybody. But it did help. Like Smart was part of the select team at one point. Went out there. It's just like a confidence thing. And the way I I keep telling people is, I'd much rather Peyton Pritchard be at select camp working against Tyrese Halliburton and Jalen Brunson then up at some pro-am in Oregon, like scoring 92 <laughs> points again. Yeah. And I, this, this, this will matter more. And I do think he's in essentially a contract year, like, right. Like final year of his rookie deal. They've got questions about him. He wants to prove himself, not just to the Celtics, but to everybody else in the league. And so there's a wild card potential for him to either kind of tap into what we saw that first year where, you know, he really was able to take the ball and, and make some things happen. I was looking at those numbers this morning in terms of like, catch and shoot percentage. Not only did his catch and shoot percentages drop, which I just think is he's, he's overthinking shots now because he's only getting limited opportunities, but like his touch time is way down because he hasn't had the ability to dribble around like he did that first year and make plays and for others. And so I I wonder what the balance is there. It takes, it's going to, it's on both sides. They got to consistently play him if, if they want him to develop and Pritchard has got to tap into what he came into the league doing and not sort of just the, the spot up guy that he's been the last two seasons. Yeah, it's 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 interesting, and it's a really good point on Pritchard because I think about it from the perspective of it's tough to get your rhythm when you're not playing that much, right? Yeah. So he's probably putting, to your point, more pressure on himself where it's like, hey, I got to hit this shot. I got to hit this shot. And I am fascinated with some of the lineups, just what they're going to do because of the fact that your four best players, are you keeping Tatum and White together all the time? Are you keeping Jalen Porzingis? Is it going to be White and Jalen, even though... The white Tatum numbers last year through the roof, like north of 123, even without Jalen on the court in terms of their offensive rating. So do you keep that group together or do you want more playmaking with Jalen? Because as we mentioned, obviously he's had turnover issues, not the best passer mm-hmm. in the world. So that's going to be an interesting thing to sort of find that dynamic. So it brings me to this, Chris, before we let you go. Who is the fifth guy in the closing mm-hmm. five? Or maybe you think there's games that maybe Porzingis isn't in it. I can't imagine that's the case. But let's go with the hypothetical that it's Tatum. Jalen, Derek White, and Porzingis. I guess the cop-out answer would be it depends on the opponent, right? Like, Mm. depending on who the opponent is, it could be Al, it could be Rob. It could even be Malcolm Brogdon, who we talked about earlier, although his defense late in games is obviously not ideal. He can't stay in front of guards at this particular point. But who do you think closes the most games for this team? And I'm not talking about, obviously, blowout games, but in clutch games, let's say the hypothetical, who do you think gets the most minutes outside of those top four guys. This was a huge issue last year. We kept saying like, how is it that they're three quarters of the way through the season? And we don't know who their closing five are. <laughs> yeah. And it, yeah, it's it's great to have flexibility. It's also great to know who the hell you're leaning on in that situation. And so Brogdon did not fare well in that situation. Uh, there was like a lot of clunkiness with him and Jalen on the court together, which never really made sense, you know, and maybe it just goes back to in ball handling and vision and all that. But that for whatever reason that didn't work. And they've, they've got to kind of maybe figure that out a little bit, depending on how the lineup shake out. Uh, but my, my, I guess when you, when you first phrased it, my, my instant reaction was probably Al. Now 
I don't know if Al starts games this year. If I'm the mm. Celtics, I'm probably a little bit, and I don't know, maybe it's just, maybe just got to do it because I mean, there is a little bit of a pride thing going on with it. And, and Al certainly, I mean, the numbers from the postseason back up, it's not like he he's lost it. It's just, you got to pay some. And I do hate the idea of, you know, once a week you got, because you have a back-to-back or once every two weeks because of a back-to-back, you got to rest them. And, and I do think that throws a little bit of players are, are, are creatures of habit. You got to know your role. You got to know like when you're playing. And I wonder if there's a way, if you alleviate a little bit of that. Now I say that, and if Rob's starting every night, you know, does Rob Porzingis work? I don't know. Like I, I keep asking people that and I'm, I'm eager to see it. Um, but I, you know, Rob's going to miss a couple of games in there and Brogdon's going to sit out a couple of games. I just guess I, from, from, from my perspective as an armchair coach, I would rather the guys missing time are the ones on the bench, right? Like that. It's easier to plug and play a backup than it is to change your starting lineup every night. And I want yeah. that group to have far more consistency than we've seen the last few years. So does it matter if I'm now telling you that Al Horford should close games? Isn't it beneficial if he's starting games so that that group get time together? Like I'm contradicting myself a little bit, but I do think there's a balance to that all. And I think more often than not, by the time they get to the playoffs, Having Allen his defense, his penchant for making big shots. Like, I, I feel like it'll probably be Allen that situation. Uh, but certainly, like, if someone wants to go out there and, and kick that door down, if Rob wants to be super great in, in crunch time, uh, put it this way. Like, last year, what was what was our other big gripe? Like, why the hell isn't Derek White playing in crunch time? He's like, his numbers yeah. were off the charts. And so sometimes you just got to figure it out and throw guys out there. So maybe there's a little bit of experimentation. But if the experimentation could end, like, in January now, instead of lingering into March or April, that would that would be helpful for for this team to to sort of figure it out. Yeah, that is a great point, though, about Al in terms of the starting role, because it is weird where every fifth game, basically, you got to change your starting lineup. And that's something that you could avoid. Now, Robert Williams, of course, we know has a checkered history as it pertains to his health. So maybe that would be an issue as well. But I'm going to be fascinated to see what they decide to do in terms of the starting lineup because obviously Rob's been more accustomed to coming off the bench but that may be the best thing for Al is to come off the bench play less minutes and then he's fresher for the stretch run because look the like on off numbers were great during the postseason for Al but the one thing that really dipped off was his shooting he didn't shoot the ball well at all and you wonder if part of that this is a guy that was what number two in the NBA in three-point shooting you wonder if part of that was just fatigue especially going back to two years ago playing all the way into the NBA Finals. He played a lot of games over the past two seasons. So maybe just playing less minutes will help Al be fresher for the postseason. Maybe don't go to six games with Atlanta. Maybe don't go to seven yeah. games. Like take That's care of business <laughs> and your 37-year-old dude will not will not be tired by the finish line. But yeah, I'm with you. Like it's that's all part of of what and that's why it all, for me it falls a lot back on the coaching. They've got to figure out the right buttons to push here. The the the, the talent's undeniable. Just got to just got to figure out how it all works together. Yeah, that's a great point, too. Just don't dick around in these series against <laughs> inferior opponents. I mean, that that's obviously an issue, too. That is Chris Forsberg from NBC Sports Boston. Chris, thanks so much for the time, man. Great stuff. Really appreciate it. Thank you. The U.S. women's soccer team is taking on the world, and you can take home bonus bets every time they win with FanDuel, because right now, new customers get $100 in bonus bets guaranteed, plus another $10 in bonus bets for every USA win. Just download FanDuel's top-rated sportsbook app and sign up between now and August 3rd. Then place your first $5 bet to unlock your bonus bets. That way, you'll be all set to bet on everything from total goals to player props all tournament long. However you want to play, don't miss your chance to get $10 in bonus bets for every USA win. Plus $100 in bonus bets guaranteed. Make every moment more with FanDuel, America's number one sportsbook. Must be 21 plus and present in select states. 
Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit theringer.com slash RG. First online real money wager only. $10 deposit required. Refund issued as non-withdrawable bonus bets, which expire in seven days. Restrictions apply. See full terms at fanduel.com slash sportsbook. All right, great stuff there from Chris Forsberg from NBC Sports Boston. A lot of fun talking with him and getting into the whole Jalen situation. I'm very intrigued to see what some of these lineups look like late in games for the Celtics. We knew eventually the Jalen deal was going to get done, but now it's done, and now the Celtics have less big things to worry about this offseason. But I did want to get into the Patriots here and just how, and and I will get into Patrice Bergeron in just a little bit here, but I do want to get into how important this season is for both Mac Jones and the organization. So it would be great if he just looked like a franchise quarterback this season because then your life is just so much easier, right? But I wanted to look at the teams that drafted quarterbacks early on. So first round and very early second. So I took basically a sample size from 2014 to 2018 and the first round quarterbacks drafted and the early second round quarterbacks just to kind of see the trends with these guys. So during that stretch, we have guys that have just hit. We have guys that have been bad. We have guys that teams hung on to too long. So just going through this, let's start with 14. So these are the quarterbacks. You had Blake Bortles, who was third overall. Remember, that was a big surprise. Teddy Bridgewater, who was what, the last pick of the second to last pick of the first round. And then Derek Carr was early second round. Then you go to 15, you have Jameis Winston and Marcus Mariota in the top two. 16, you had Jared Goff, Carson Wentz, and Paxton Lynch. You go to 17, it's Trubisky, Mahomes, and Watson. You go to 18, it's Baker, Sam Darnold, Josh Allen, Josh Rosen, and Lamar Jackson. So the reason I took from 14 to 18 rather than later, just because we know what these guys are as players now, right? Like some of these other guys that were just drafted and guys that were drafted two years ago, we don't know as much about them at this particular point in time. Those guys from 14 to 18, we pretty much know who they are as players. So a couple of categories here, right? The guys that just hit, as I mentioned, you're set for the next decade and a half. That group is Mahomes, Josh Allen, and Lamar. Now, Deshaun Watson appeared to be in that group, but then things went south with him and the organization. Remember the whole situation with DeAndre Hopkins getting traded. So there was bad blood with the organization, and then Watson himself had the -the off-the-field issues. So the Texans had their guy, but then they all of a sudden didn't have their guy anymore, right? So he's almost in his own category, if you will. But then there's that group, Mahomes, Allen, Jackson. That's the ideal scenario. Now, obviously, things got ugly with Lamar and the Ravens, but that deal ultimately got done, and they're building their organization around him. So then there's that group after that where guys flashed in some capacity, but things looked good at times, but then they gave up on the player, or they decided, oh, yeah, he's actually not good enough, and then there's the whole group that the guy just completely sucked. Okay, so first, Teddy Bridgewater, who he looked pretty good early on. He's in that category where... Second year, they make the playoffs. They lose to the Seahawks in that crazy cold game. I still believe that's the coldest game in NFL history. And I was never a big Bridgewater guy just because he doesn't have a big arm and he's not a super good athlete, right? So he doesn't really have, and I talked about this with Eric Edholm, with Mac Jones, he doesn't really have that superpower. So there was really not a special trait, okay? And he didn't really have a quick release either, like really nothing. But in 2016, he suffers that horrible injury in camp. And was so bad that the Vikings had to start planning without him to the point they declined his fifth-year option because of concerns over the knee. And then in 17, they made the NFC title game without Bridgewater. Remember, that was Case Keenum. And after that, they decide, hey, we need an upgrade over Keenum. So they go after Kirk Cousins. So really, if you look at that one, that's an injury situation where they moved on from the player. But in all likelihood, eventually they would have moved on from Bridgewater anyway because he just 
quite frankly, is not a great player. I mean, think about last year, the Dolphins, when they don't have Tua, Bridgewater can't run that offense, right? Because he doesn't have a quick release. His skill set isn't similar to Tua's. Okay, so next up is Blake Bortles, where Bortles, he's in this category too, where he flashed. The second year in the league, he throws for 35 touchdowns. He did have, by the way, a league-high 18 picks that season, but that was a bad team. You thought, okay, 35 touchdowns, maybe there's something there. And in 16, his completion percentage is bad again, 58.9%. He has 16 interceptions. So his first three seasons, 17 picks, 18 picks, and 16. They stick with him, though. And in 2017, what happens? The Jaguars go 10-6. and Now, the regular season numbers are not particularly great, but they make it into the playoffs, right? And that team was really good. Remember, they beat the Bills in the wild card round. Then they upset the Jaguars, or I should say the Jaguars. They upset the Pittsburgh Steelers 45-42 to in that crazy game. And then they nearly beat the Patriots. Remember, it was 20-10 to in the fourth quarter where Gronk was not playing in that game, or I should say he had to leave that game with a concussion. And of course, Edelman didn't play that season because he was dealing with a torn ACL. That was a great Danny Amendola game. But the Miles Jack play, like there was some controversy in that play, right? Was it a fumble? Was it not a fumble? But anyway, so Bortles, like they go to the, the AFC Championship with Bortles. They're like, okay, they give him a three-year, $54 million extension. And what happens after that? Well, Bortles was horrible in 18. He was benched for Cody Kessler, and then he was released in the 19 offseason. So despite the extension, they still said, you know what, Blake, it's time to move on, right? So it took them a while to get right after that. They picked up Nick Foles, and then they had Minshew Mania for a second, but that team fell apart because they couldn't find the guy. Like, they had a really good roster. They eventually bottomed out. They traded Jalen Ramsey, and now it feels like finally they have their guy after Blake Bortles in Trevor Lawrence, right? So they tried the veteran route and eventually it led them to the number one pick. Okay, so that brings us to Jameis. So sure, Jameis definitely showed upside. Okay, you can't deny that, but he was just 28 and 42 in Tampa. And he was a real part of the problem, right? Always throwing interceptions to the point where he had that 30 for 30 season, 30 touchdowns, 30 picks. And remember, the Bucs didn't extend him after 18. They just picked up his fifth year option because obviously there was question marks with the player. And then after 19, they moved on from him because Brady became available, right? And Arians, by the way, did say after 19, if we can win with him, we can win with another quarterback too when he was asked about, is Jameis the guy going forward? But Tampa's decision was kind of easy because they were a quarterback away with, remember, the defense, the numbers were not great for that defense in 2019. Now, some of the outlying numbers were, but just the raw numbers were not great because <laughs> they were giving up a ton of points because it was on Jameis in the offense. When you throw 30 picks, you're putting your defense in a lot of bad positions, right? So anyway, that team was loaded defensively from a talent perspective. And at that point, they had good offensive players, especially a guy like Mike Evans and Chris Godwin. So they were in a situation where they were more lucky than anything else to move on from Jameis, right? Where a Hall of Fame quarterback became available who had issues with his previous team, as we all know, the Patriots. But anyway, my overwhelming point here is there wasn't much of a market for Tom either, right? Remember, like these teams like San Francisco decided, hey, we prefer Jimmy over Tom Brady. So there really weren't a lot of destinations for Tom to go. So Tampa, really, they lucked out more than anything else recovering from Jameis. And now they're looking for another quarterback again. They're going to have to find a quarterback because obviously Tom was only there for three years. Okay, so then there's Marcus Mariota, where Mariota, now there were some flashes. The numbers were never really good with him in Tennessee. They did make the playoffs in there, dealt with some injuries. They picked up the fifth year option, but they never extended him. 
In 19, they felt like they needed another option, so they bring in Tannehill, and Mariota is benched during a week six loss, and Tannehill takes over the job for good. And we know the history there. Tannehill takes them to the AFC Championship game, even though it's not really Tannehill. We mentioned that on the pod last week. It was Derrick Henry. But they basically go through the rookie contract and decide to move on. They never extend Marcus Mariota. Okay, so then that brings us to Jared Goff. So atrocious rookie season with Jeff Fisher, but then Sean McVay came in. They sort of got him right, right? They go to the playoffs in Goff's second year. And then in his third year, they go 13-3. and They make it all the way to the Super Bowl before losing to the Patriots. Now, they ended up extending him after that Super Bowl run, four years, a buck 34. And then flip forward to 2020, Goff deals with a thumb injury. And remember, John Wolford was actually starting the playoff game over Goff. Goff was still sort of banged up. Now, eventually he comes in because Wolford goes down with a neck injury. But after that season, the Rams determined, hey, we were wrong about Goff. We need an upgrade at that particular position. So since the contract there was so bad, they actually, and Goff's played well in Detroit to his credit, right? But at the time, that was a really bad contract. And you had to attach an additional first round pick in the Stafford trade just to get rid of how bad Jared Goff's contract was, right? So Again, this is a situation where it sort of fell in the lap of the Rams, right? Where they were in a better position than the Patriots. Remember at the time, Stafford told the Lions he didn't want to play for the Patriots as like his potential destinations. That was the team he said, I don't want to play for now. Of course, part of that is the Matt Patricia aspect to all this. But they weren't really an appealing team at that particular point in time either. And the Rams put themselves in a really good position to get Stafford because they had a loaded roster. They had a coach that is innovative offensively. And they had just previously made it to the Super Bowl in 2018. So it's a pretty easy sell to a guy like Matthew Stafford, where if you watch that offense and you say, wait, I was the number one pick in the draft if I'm Matthew Stafford. I'm way more, and I know Goff was too, but I'm way more talented than Jared Goff. Goff's putting up these video game numbers and he's going to the Super Bowl with Sean McVay. That's an appealing situation. So for the Rams, they moved on from Goff, but it took Matthew Stafford being unhappy in Detroit for them to actually have success post-Jared Goff, right? Then there's Carson Wentz, where in 17, the year Tom Brady won the MVP, Wentz was the front runner. Remember, he led the Eagles to, what, an 11-2 record, 33 touchdowns and seven interceptions before he goes down with the injury. Nick Foles is the guy, of course, we all remember that beat the Patriots in the Super Bowl. And then Wentz was never the same after that. In 18, he struggled, then he hurt his back. And there was reporting at that point in time that guys didn't really like Carson Wentz, and he was too focused on Zach Ertz. Remember that whole thing? But the Eagles, they still picked up his fifth-year option, and then they extended him four for 128. In 19, they make the playoffs, but in 2020, he's benched for Jalen Hurts. And eventually, they decide, hey, look, we now have three years plus since the Super Bowl where he flashed the Super Bowl season. We have a guy in Hurts. Let's see if he can be the guy. And if not, we'll go back in the draft. And it ends up working out that Jalen Hurts is a really good player. They just extended him. So it took them until they found Jalen Hurts in the draft to eventually move on from Carson Wentz, but they extend him. They decide it's time to move on. So basically he just plays out the rookie contract, if you will, in Philly. Play the five five years there if you count the option. All right, so that brings us to Trubisky. I was never a big fan of him. I'd never understood. First of all, I'm not going to say that I thought Mahomes is going to be this type of player in the NFL, but I never understood why anybody would take Trubisky over Watson in the draft when Watson was coming out of clumps. And now we find out there's obviously issues with Watson, but at the time I never understood that. One year at North Carolina as a starter, but his second season, the Bears did make the playoffs. They go 11-3, and three, or he goes 11-3, and three, I should say. And you thought, okay, maybe you're onto something with him and Matt Nagy. 
we would find out you weren't onto something with either one of those guys. But they had a great defense. That's really why they were winning, right? And he was not good at 19, averaged 209 yards per game, 83 passer rating, which is 28th out of 33 quarterbacks that qualified. So they decided not even to pick up the fifth-year option on Trubisky, and they brought in Nick Foles, who has been a theme of this conversation. Nick Foles comes in, he plays 10 games. He was not great, so the Bears move on from Trubisky, and then in the 2021 draft, they, of course, move up. They get Justin Fields, and they feel like they replace him. Obviously, the jury's still out on Fields, but that's how they move on from a guy like Mitchell Trubisky. All right, then there's Baker, where it looks promising, 27 touchdowns at his rookie year. He's becoming a star in the league. Remember, he's getting all these commercials for State Farm. And then the next season, he goes 22 touchdowns, 21 picks. Yeah, the whole debacle with Freddie Kitchens getting the head coaching job, it just didn't work out. So then they decide in the offseason, they go out there, they get Odell Beckham Jr., where it felt like at times they really were in a situation where Baker was like glued on Odell Beckham Jr. They never meshed together. In 2020, they get Kevin Stefanski. It becomes a run-heavy offense. They have some success. They finish third in rushing yards that season. And that's, of course, Nick Chubb was a major hit from the head Kareem Hunt, too. And remember, they won a playoff game over the Steelers. So you felt like, okay, even though it wasn't a great year for Baker, the team's playing pretty well, okay? And then in 2021, that's when the wheels really start to come off. They did pick up the fifth-year option. He was banged up, but he went 6-8, and eight, 17 touchdowns, 13 picks, compared to 26-8 and eight the previous season. So what happens after 2021? They trade Baker to Carolina, and they bring in Deshaun Watson with all his baggage, as we've alluded to. And part of the reason they get Watson is they're just so desperate, right? they're willing to acquire the type of player that other teams wouldn't have, except there were other teams involved, right? The Saints, the Falcons, and the Panthers. But they're so desperate for a quarterback, they're willing to bring in a guy like Deshaun Watson with all that baggage. But the Browns, remember, and they did him a favor too. They structured the contract for basically like the first year. It was like $1 million in base. So when he got suspended by the NFL, it wasn't going to cost him a lot of money. But the Browns were ready to move on, getting back to the Baker point of this as I digress. They were ready to move on from Baker after just four seasons. Stefanski felt like, okay, he's not the guy. So after four seasons. All right. So then if you look at it in terms of those are mostly the, those are the guys that flashed and then the teams eventually moved on. So you thought you had something with Baker, right? You thought you had something with Carson Wentz. You thought you had something with Jared Goff and then you eventually moved on. And all the guys that signed extensions, when we're talking about the Bortles of the world and when we're talking about the situation where you sign Bortles to three for 54 and a couple of these other guys that you sign extensions to with the Wentz, the Goffs, those extensions end up looking bad, right? So really none of those guys worked out long-term for their organization. The second category or the third category, I should say, is the guys that, or the third category is the guys that you just said, yeah, we fucked up. Okay. So that's Paxton Lynch. He was horrible, barely even played in Denver. Then there's Josh Rosen, who remember said, Nine teams made a mistake by not drafting me. No, actually, not really. None of them made a mistake. He was atrocious. They had the number one pick the next year, so they moved on from him right away. And he was a bust. We all saw it right away. He had a terrible attitude, too. But anyway, and then I put Sam Darnold in this category, too, because, look, maybe there were some moments in there if you were a Jets fan, but they were really short-lived. All his numbers are atrocious. And in year two, he's on Monday Night Football saying that he's seeing ghosts against the Patriots. Remember that? And... By 2021, they're moving on from Darnold and selecting another quarterback in Zach Wilson that would not work out. But he only made it three seasons in New York. And then eventually, maybe the Jets have their guy in Aaron Rodgers. But nonetheless, and then there's the fourth category where this is unique to Derek Carr. This is, hey, we kept believing. So Derek Carr, 2016, shows flashes, 28 
touchdowns, six interceptions in his 15 games, but then he broke his leg. And he couldn't play in the playoff game that season, but they extend him anyway, five years, 125, because like he was a fringy MVP candidate in 2016 before the injury. And then after getting extended, he doesn't make it back into the playoffs until the 2021 season. They lose to the Bengals that year in the first round. And so Carr in nine years there, he goes 63 and 79. And he had a lot of seasons where his numbers looked good, but he never impacted winning, right? And nobody wanted to say like, oh, Derek Carr is our guy. We we never had him as part of the NBA or the NFL conversation, I would say. So fine, it's fair that he looked like a d- decent guy, but he was never a top tier quarterback and they just kept extending him, right? So it took until Josh McDaniels came in and decided he was not the guy and he brings in Jimmy, which that's a whole different conversation. I'll get into that in a second here. But they've been in essentially no man's land right now. But their situation is probably worse, right, than these other teams because they kept waiting for him to get into this elite category. And he was never as good as the top tier guys when he came into the league, never got to their level, the Brady, the Rodgers, et cetera. And then the problem for the Raiders are, or the Raiders is, all these other guys came in, Mahomes, Burrow, all these guys passed him, the Herberts of the world, right? So he was coming into the league, he was okay early. And then he wasn't as good as the elite guys. And then the younger quarterbacks came in and they were all better than him as well. So he was in a situation where you look at it, right? Like Mahomes, Herbert, Burrow, Lamar, Allen. I mentioned these guys. He was always in the middle of the pack. He was never an elite level quarterback. So you kept doubling down on that situation and it never worked out for the Raiders in terms of any sort of team success. I'm not saying it's all on car. Obviously, the franchise has been a complete dumpster fire. But he was never a franchise-level guy, a top-end franchise guy. Okay, so that's why I come back to the Max situation. When we look at these categories, obviously we can rule out the Lamar Allen Mahomes category, right? He's not in that situation. All those guys are special where you're saying 10 to 15 years, we got our guy, right? You're not there. So then you look at these teams that moved on. The Jags, Doug Marone was not there when they drafted Bortles. He was part of the team when they moved on from Bortles, okay? So the Bucks, they had head coach in Bruce Arians that was not there when they drafted Jameis, had no connection, okay? And then, of course, you go get Brady. It's actually helping the GM to bring Brady in. The Titans, Mike Vrabel was not there when they drafted Marcus Mariota. Jared Goff, McVay was not there. It was Jeff Fisher. Carson Wentz, Nick Sirianni took over in 2021. He was not there when they drafted Wentz. Trubisky, Matt Nagy actually took over in 2018. What we'd find out, neither one of those guys were worth it. Baker, Kevin Stefanski was not there. Sam Darnold, Robert Sala was not there. So none of these coaches had connections to the quarterback, right? So a lot of times these GMs, they want to stick with their guy at quarterback, but a way to get around that is to hire another head coach that shows promise, right? And that's another way to sort of extend your longevity as a GM in the league. And obviously Matt Nagy, as I mentioned, didn't work out. Marone didn't work out. But it's just a tool for GMs to try to make excuses for their team not playing well or missing on a quarterback. Hey, this coach can get the quarterback right, right? Like that's part of the calculus is, hey, it's not my quarterback that I drafted. It's actually the coach. So let me go get another, let me go get another coach for the quarterback, right? Now, some lost their jobs anyway, right? Like John Robinson, he lost his job most likely because of the A.J. Brown situation. That was just a horrible trade. But the Bears moved on from Ryan Pace. And we see guys getting fired left and right in the league. But my point is just some of these GMs, they could never save their job because they weren't good at their job. So even though they tried to pivot to a different coach to save their quarterback, turns out they just weren't good building rosters, right? Most teams that decided to move on from their quarterback, though, it comes with a coach that was not there for the start of things with that specific quarterback. 
they're more willing to go get their guy, right? If I'm a coach, think about it from a GM's perspective. He wants to go down with his coach. If I'm a coach, I want to go down with my quarterback, right? So if I'm trying to get this quarterback and say Mitchell Trubisky to play well, I wasn't here. I didn't like him when he was coming out of the draft when I was with a different organization. I want a new quarterback. That's part of what the coach thinks too. Like I want a real fair shot to be a coach in the league. So they're willing to move on from the player. So I just feel like the with the Patriots, they're in such a unique position here in terms of the future with Mac, right? Compared to all these other teams, because I've mentioned on multiple occasions, I don't see Robert moving on from Bill. I just think Robert Kraft moving on from Bill. I just think he likes it to be out there that he's willing to move on from Bill, right? That Bill may be hypothetically on the hot seat. I don't believe it, right? I just don't see Robert making that move for a multitude of reasons. But let's just look at how long it took some of these teams that I mentioned to get back to relevance after not hitting on their quarterback. So the Jaguars drafted Bortles in 14. It feels like they're now back in 2023, or I should say in 2022, really, where they went to the playoffs with Trevor Lawrence. That's eight years later. The car And they tried the veteran route, didn't work out. The car situation, they never got to relevance with Derek Carr, right? And they're not there now. The Vikings, they stayed relevant. Despite the Teddy thing, to me, what really made them good is they really drafted well for a number of years. Now, eventually it fell off, and a guy like Kirk Cousins, who, not the best quarterback in the world, but you rarely see a quarterback of Kirk Cousins' ability who was perceived to be a top 15 guy in the league, never going to be in the top five, right? Probably never going to be in the top 10, but he's perceived to be a starting caliber quarterback in the NFL. Ordinarily, those guys don't become available, but because of the Washington situation and how unique that was, where they just kept franchising him, he became available. So the Vikings kind of lucked out when it comes to that in terms of at least they're competent, right? They won the division last year. Now, obviously, Prior to last year, that was the Packers division. But the Bucs, they drafted Winston in 15. It took them until 2020 when Brady became available. And that was, as I mentioned earlier, really unique. But now they're in a situation where they're looking for another quarterback. And it took a Hall of Fame quarterback becoming available for them to get back to relevance, right? Like that doesn't happen. A guy like Tom Brady does not become available in this league. The Titans, they recovered nicely in 19 with Tannehill. But they still, they're never going to win a Super Bowl with him at the quarterback position, right? And I know they made it to the AFC title game, but nobody ever thought they were going to win the Super Bowl. And so now they're still searching for the guy, like, from recovering from Marcus Mariota, is Will Levis the guy, right? They haven't found that stability at the position. The Eagles, a loaded team in 2016, remember, they win with the backup quarterback in 17 and Nick Foles. Now... If you look at it now, it takes them until, what, 2020 to get back to stability with the quarterback position when they hit on Hurts. But really, we don't see Hurts playing all the time until 2022. We feel good about that quarterback position. So despite some team success in there, it took them a while to get to their next quarterback. The Rams in 16, it takes them until 2021. Despite the run with Goff, the Patriots, right, when you look at it, they aren't like the Rams where the Rams are in L.A., They have Sean McVay. They have all these star players. It made it appealing for them to get a guy like Matthew Stafford, but it took them until 2021. And that run, quite frankly, may be over because Stafford was banged up and not good last season. The Broncos in 16, they still haven't recovered. Unless Sean Payton can fix Russell Wilson, they still haven't recovered from Peyton Manning retiring in 2015. Lynch is not the guy. Obviously, he was not the guy. They went through a bunch of guys, the Mark Sanchez's of the world, et cetera. It had never worked out there with the Denver Broncos. We'll see if it's Russell Wilson, but Drew Locke wasn't it. We've seen all these guys that didn't work out for this organization. All right, 17, the Texans with the issues off the field with Watson. Maybe they've recovered now, but it's too early to tell, right? I mean, C.J. Stroud has never played a game in the NFL, 
and you're starting this cycle in 2023. So we'll find out more on that later on in the road. But they still, up until this point, they haven't recovered because the Watson thing went so south of them. Despite the early promise, the guy was an absolute stud. It just completely went south for a multitude of reasons that we talked about. 2017 with the Bears, look, maybe Fields is their guy, but it's not a proven thing right now. Fields right now, look, I really like Fields. I think he's super athletic. He can make plays with his legs. We'll see if he can be a consistent passer. He hasn't proven that yet in the NFL, but still, you wouldn't say as we enter the 2023 season that they have their guy and they drafted Trubisky in 17. 18 Baker, they still haven't recovered from my perspective because Watson was so bad last year, unless you think Watson is really going to bounce back. But even then, they still haven't recovered. They're going to have to prove that in 2023 with Watson. The 18 Jets, we think that they've recovered, right? Because they have Aaron Rodgers, but it also could go, could go south with that bad offensive line. So it took them. They drafted another quarterback who didn't work out. So they drafted Darnold. They drafted Zach Wilson. They're now at the point where a veteran's available. And that all, all is because they're in New York and they have a loaded roster. And we'll see if Rodgers works out. But you can't say definitively it's worked out yet. As much as most people believe it's going to work out because it's Aaron Rodgers, there's still at least somewhat of a question mark there. And then you look at the Cardinals... 18, the Rosen draft, they draft Murray the next year. Murray's shown flashes, but 2023, we're not even sure because he's going to miss most of the season, you would think, because he's dealing with that torn ACL that he suffered against the Patriots. I would argue they haven't recovered. I don't believe that Kyler Murray is the type of quarterback you build your team around. So I just went through a five-year period where 15 quarterbacks were drafted in the first round or the very early second round. And you have that group of three that we alluded to that still feels really good about the player they drafted, obviously. Mahomes has won two Super Bowls. Josh Allen has played at an MVP level at times. Lamar Jackson has won an MVP with the Baltimore Ravens. The other teams in this group that feel good is maybe because they have moved on from their guy and they think they have the next one, right? The Jags with Lawrence, obviously. The Eagles with Hurts definitely feel that way. They just gave him $255 million. And the Jets with Rodgers, who now it's a veteran quarterback. So my point being... You can recover from missing on a quarterback in different ways, the veteran route, but that seems to be luck involved with Brady and with Matt Stafford, right? But this exercise just has me so intrigued about what happens with Mac Jones long-term. That's why I wanted to look at this to see what the most likely scenario for Mac would be after this upcoming season. I just don't see any way he gets the big long-term contract, right, after the season, especially when we're seeing guys like Jalen Hurts get $255 million. Next up is going to be Joe Burrow and Justin Herbert. Do you think there's any chance the Patriots feel that confident about Mac after next season? Certainly not. So that's where I think the Patriots could be in a tough spot going forward. So if the Patriots don't think Mac is the guy after this year to give an extension to, they may just stick it out and either say, hey, we're not giving you the fifth year option and just play out the fourth year or say the hypothetical is they give him the fifth year option. There's still questions going forward, right? But what's the avenue to improve this position, right? Because if you decide that Mac's not the guy, what's their avenue to improve? You're not going to be bad enough to get into the Caleb Williams, Drake May sweepstakes, if you will. Now, maybe someone else comes into the conversation in the middle of the first round that you feel good about, but then there's going to be a lot of teams that get active when it comes to the middle of the first round because they don't get one of the two guys at the top of the draft, right? You're going to have a bunch of teams that are trying to get that third guy, if you will. And then the veteran market, we told you, it's so tough to predict. So maybe just rolling it back, with Mac Jones is the most likely scenario after this season. And look, my hope is that Mac develops into a franchise quarterback because that would just solve all these problems. I just have question marks. I do think even going back to his rookie season, we tend to overrate that. 
91.3 passer rating. That was good, but it was 17th. Completion percentage, 67.3%. That was 8th. So that's good, but the yards per attempt were 7.2, which was 15th. 19th in passing yards per game, 22 or 223.6. So Max job as a rookie, and I give him credit. He had a good season. I'm not trying to say that he sucked or anything along those lines. It's just his job wasn't very difficult as a rookie. Defense was outstanding. They turned the ball over left and right. So it wasn't like he was so good. Like he wasn't the reason they made it into the postseason, right? And so, yes, it was a good rookie season, but sometimes we look at it as like this precursor to a guy that should be the quarterback for the next 10 years or so. And I'm just not there. The year was good, but how good was it really? Because right now, I don't think any Patriots fan feels confident, at least if you're a sane Patriots fan and you're not wearing footy pajamas that are of the Patriots variety. I don't think anybody feels certain that Mac is the guy long-term, right? And the other thing I would say is we know that sort of the relationship soured with Bill last year at times, right? Where he was unhappy with some of the things that were going on. But I do feel like this would be a really bad look for Bill if this doesn't work out because you spent the 15th overall pick on a quarterback. And if he isn't the guy, it's really even more of an indictment on the post-Tom Brady era, right? Because we know the record 25 and 25, but if you look at the offense since Tom left, 23rd in drop back expected points added EPA, and they are 21st in drop back success rate. If you go from 11 to 19, the Patriots were first in drop back EPA, and they were third in drop back success rate. So they've dropped 22 spots in drop back EPA. They've dropped 18 spots in drop back success rate. So they had no plan post Tom, right? Where you think about it from the perspective of Jared Sidman, Brian Hoyer before Cam Newton became available. And what we would find out is the reason Cam was available, he couldn't throw this thing called the forward pass anymore, right? He, his arm, he was shot in terms of he was a shot fighter. And now you go from that mess having a guy that you're not sure about. It would just be a tough look for the whole organization if Mac isn't their guy. And that recent history that I went through from 14 to 18 tells you in all likelihood that Mac isn't the guy, even if he shows a little bit of progress this year, right? Where it's similar to the guy that we saw his rookie year, that's probably not a guy that you want to sign long-term for the organization. All these guys have shown flashes in the past, and we laugh about guys like Blake Bortles now, and Mitchell Trubisky now, and Jameis Winston, all these guys that I went through, we laugh at those guys. Jared Goff, right? We laughed at those guys, Carson Wentz, but all these guys, for the most part, showed flashes, and a lot of them, their flashes were higher than Matt. Carson Wentz in his second year was really fucking good. Jared Goff went to the Super Bowl in 2018. So a lot of these guys showed even higher highs than Mac Jones did. So I'm just telling you the history of the league from recent history would tell you that Mac Jones isn't the Patriots guy long-term. Now, I hope I'm wrong about this, but I'm just going through it. Usually we know pretty quickly here and you can reference Josh Allen and say, hey, well, Brian, Allen's really breakout year came in year three. But does anybody think that Mac Jones has a similar skill set and a similar talent level to a guy like Josh Allen where you say, hey, yeah, that's the guy going forward. That's I just don't see it, right? I mean, Josh Allen, you could see what the Bills liked, okay? We saw that second year, he was running the ball pretty well, but you knew like he had a rocket arm. And if, if they could just harness it a little bit and they got the right coach in there in Brian Dayball and they got the receiver in Stephon Diggs, I just don't see the upside with Mac Jones when it comes to it from that perspective. So the more and more I look at this thing, I think the Patriots are going to be in quarterback limbo next season, and I still think Mac Jones will be the quarterback, but I think it's going to be a situation where it's almost this treadmill of mediocrity thing where 
you're looking for the next guy, but you're hoping Mac works out just like all these other teams were hoping the guy worked out until they eventually moved on. I think the worst case scenario, and you can say, hey, the Patriots are better or uh, better organizationally. The worst case scenario would be the Derek Carr situation because you got to make a decision sooner than that because Derek Carr just keeps going on playing mediocre football and that organization being a complete dumpster fire. It didn't work out. So it's just sort of interesting thinking about how big this year is for Mac Jones. And I don't really think we're going to have a definitive answer or I don't think we're going to have like this exclamation mark after the season that says, got to sign him long term. I just don't see that being the case whatsoever. A lot more to get into, including Patrice Bergeron hanging him up. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Welcome back into Off the Pike. So a big announcement today, Patrice Bergeron, the same day that Jalen Brown gets his extension over the Celtics, Patrice Bergeron decides to hang him up after 19 seasons. He released a statement this morning. And the first thing that sticks out to me in this statement is, as hard as this is to write, I also write it knowing how blessed and lucky I feel to have had a career that I've had and that I've had the opportunity to leave the game on my own terms. It wasn't a decision that came to me lightly, but after listening to my body and talking with my family, I know in my heart that it's the right time to step away from playing the game I love. Okay, so a couple of things here. Remember, he was really banged up in the postseason coming back from the back injury. He had a herniated disc. So if you think about it, that was an obstacle that he had to overcome just getting to the playoffs and being able to play at all. And good season for Patrice Bergeron. Got over the 1,000-point threshold in his career. And I also think about going back to last season, it really did feel... Like this had a last dance feel to it, right? Where you moved on from Bruce Cassidy, who ends up getting the cup in Vegas. But obviously, Bruce Cassidy was not in a great situation with a lot of the players. He goes to Vegas and he wins. But the idea is, okay, if Cassidy's gone, David Krejci's going to come back. And that core group of Bergeron, Krejci, Marshawn, and Pasta, to a lesser extent, McAvoy, can have one more year together, right? And now, no one could have expected that this was going to go as well as it did during the regular season where you set the record for both points and for wins. And look, we all know how disappointing the loss was to the Panthers. And maybe if you have a healthy, and I stress a healthy Patrice Bergeron because, of course, they lost the three games he came back for. But if you have a healthy Patrice Bergeron entering the postseason, maybe you end up winning the series. Now, there's a lot of other things to blame in terms of, I'm not saying that's why the Bruins lost the series. I mean, the fact that it took Jim Montgomery until game seven to go to Swayman obviously factored in. I don't know why he put Clifton back in the lineup over Grizzly for game six. Like he just made a lot of boneheaded decisions for that whole thing. But I'm sure that you look at it, it was an ugly way for the season to end for the Bruins despite the great regular season. But the point being is that it could have gone a lot better in the playoffs. Okay. 
Now, you had the whole Mitchell Miller situation during the regular season that Bergeron spoke up on that. But other than that, it was pretty much like for the regular season, it was a fairy tale season until the abrupt ending in the postseason. The only real issue that you had was the Mitchell Miller situation, which was horrible for the organization. But Bergeron is basically the guy that put an end to it. And Bergeron can look at this right now. And I think part of the reason he says it's my time is if you're being realistic and look, this is tough to say, but you lost Orlov. You traded Hall. You did not bring back Bertuzzi. You're not nearly as deep as you were last season. If I'm Bergeron, do I really want to do everything it takes to get ready for an NHL season, which is a grind at the age of 39, coming off that back injury when I look at it, and I may not have a great opportunity to win the Stanley Cup. That's what he'd be playing for, right? I mean, that was the last dance last season. You're not having another last dance this season when your team's not as good. And you can tell by the statement, the wear and tear, the grind, it's just too much. He says, I know in my heart, this is the right time to step away from playing the game I love. And our friends at FanDuel, they have the Bruins eighth in terms of Stanley Cup odds. And if you look at it, that may be a little high from my perspective even, right? Because if I'm Bergeron, I'm busting my ass at 39 to get ready for the season, where you look at these other teams in the East, Carolina, New Jersey, Toronto, the Lightning, the Panthers, it just... It's very difficult to see the Bruins coming through that, right? I mean, even if you're the biggest Bruins fan in the world, I mean, that's a very good Eastern Conference right now. Now, the one thing I will say, so I think that's really what it is, is Bergeron looks at this and he's accomplished everything he can accomplish, right? I mean, in terms of he won a Stanley Cup. Now, you would have liked it if he got another one. We'll get into that in a second here. But you've won the most Selkie Awards in the history of the NHL. And if you're not coming back with a really good opportunity to win the Stanley Cup, it just... I can totally understand why he wouldn't want to do that at this age, right? Now, the one thing I will say is Bergeron kind of went out like Ortiz and Brady, right? Where we saw Pierce suck at the end of his career with the Clippers, right? Where we actually saw Pierce, he was out of shape. He wasn't good at basketball anymore. 3.2 points per game for an NBA player. I mean, for a normal guy, he'd be really good at basketball. But you get my point. Even a guy like Kevin Garnett, he sucked at the end. He averaged 3.2 points per game. I'm not talking about his Celtics, of course. I'm talking about KG in Minnesota when he went back there. He wasn't good with Brooklyn either, right? Bergeron, his final season, he won the Selkie, plus 35. That was eighth in the NHL. It was fourth among non-defensemen. He won the most face-offs in the NHL this past season. 27 goals, 31 assists. I mean, that's a good season, 58 points. And his line this season, the Marshawn-DeBrus line with Bergeron, Goals percentage was at 67%, which means they scored 67% of the goals when they were on the ice. That was the sixth best of any line that played at least 300 minutes together. 1.6 goals against per 60. That was the fourth best of any line that played 300 300 minutes together. So he was really good this season. So he had an incredible season. You compare him to guys like Ortiz's final season. Now, it's not as good as Ortiz's. Ortiz's final season, 315, 401, 620 slug, which was first in all of Major League Baseball by 25 points. 10-21 OPS, which was first by 30 points, 48 doubles, which was first, 38 bombs tied for 11th. Remember, at that time, we're saying, can you just come back? And in 17, the Red Sox didn't have a middle of the lineup hitter. They were hitting Mookie in the cleanup spot. But Ortiz, he was at a point where he couldn't do it from a health perspective either, like Bergeron's talking about it. Now, Bergeron probably could. He's just saying he doesn't have it in him to do anymore. With Ortiz, his feet were fucked up that year. So he didn't want to come back, and he went out on an incredible high, as did Bergeron. Now, obviously, Ortiz is higher. Brady, his team was bad, but... If he retired, by the way, after 2021, he would have went out leading the league in passing yards and touchdowns. But he threw for 276 yards per game last season. Certainly did not suck, right? His team sucked. He didn't. So Ortiz definitely had the best final season of this trio. But Brady, 
he was pretty good too, and I know he didn't do it here, but Brady had a phenomenal season. I mean, you think about guys like Larry Bird was broken down at the end of his career, but something we rarely see that guys go out kind of on top. Not that Bergeron was at his absolute peak. You could argue Ortiz was. Brady wasn't at his absolute peak, but it's kind of like Barry Sanders, right, where these guys never sucked, which is kind of cool to see. The one thing that I think would have put Bergeron, and I alluded to this, into another stratosphere as a player is one more cup, right? Because he has the most Selkies, best defensive forward of his generation. He gets one more cup. He's kind of in a different conversation, right? Because 13, we know what happened. 19, we know what happened. And this was a really golden opportunity this year with this loaded team that you had and the organization. Part of the reason it's going all in is because you know that Bergeron and Krejci could be done. That's why you make the Orlov trade. That's why you make the Bertuzzi trade. You're put it, pushing all your chips to the middle of the table to try to make that final run. Unfortunately, it just didn't work out. And you look at some of the elite players in the league throughout the tenure that Bergeron was in the league. Crosby's got three cups. He won the back-to-back. Taves and Kane each have three. Stamkos and Kucherov won back-to-back, right? And then you look at it in terms of, say, like Ovechkin. Yeah, he's only got the one cup, but he has the second most goals in the history of the NHL. So it kind of puts him in his own category. Now, you could say the same thing about Bergeron in terms of the Selkies, but nobody really mentions Patrice Bergeron in the same sentence as a guy like Alexander Ovechkin. And I do think that, hey, if he got that second cup with the Bruins team, and imagine if he did it in his final season, it just would have put him in a totally different category. But unbelievable career. We'll see what the Bruins do from a leadership perspective going forward without Patrice Bergeron, who even as recently as a couple of months ago with the Mitchell Miller situation we mentioned has been a great leader for this organization. I just wish that the Bruins had a deeper run in the postseason. I wish for the sake of Patrice Bergeron, the one thing I really feel bad about, and I know he wanted to play in Montreal in terms of that game in Montreal, the only thing I really feel bad about is he didn't have an opportunity to really be healthy for his final postseason run. The season was magical. The postseason, is, of course, was not, and Bergeron was dealing with an injury, which is the unfortunate part of the end of the Bergeron tenure, if you will. All right, as always, make sure to get your voicemails in at 617-396-7172, 617-396-7172. Email your thoughts and questions to offthepike at gmail.com. Thanks to Jamie McClellan and Steve Strudy for producing this podcast, and we'll talk in a couple of days. Must be 21 plus and present in select states. FanDuel is offering online sports wagering in Kansas under an agreement with Kansas Star Casino, LLC. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit FanDuel.com RG in Colorado, Iowa, Michigan, New Jersey, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Illinois, Tennessee, and Virginia. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP or text Next Step to 53342 in Arizona, 1-888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org in Connecticut. 1-800-9-WITH-IT in Indiana, 1-800-522-4700 or visit ksgamblinghelp.com in Kansas, 1-877-770-STOP in Louisiana, visit mdgamblinghelp.org in Maryland, visit 1800gambler.net in West Virginia, call 1-800-522-4700 in Wyoming, hope is here, visit gamblinghelplinema.org or call 800-327-5050 for 24-7 support in Massachusetts or call one 877 8 Hope and Y or text Hope and Y.